HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider show with our good friends Gay and Kay from United States of Cider. And they've brought in some really cool cider makers, Ellen from Tilted Shed in California and Polly from Aaronboro up, up in New York State. So we're sponsored by Union Beer Distributors, suppliers of world-class ales and ciders. And you can follow us at, at beer underscore sessions. And we're on the Heritage Radio Network.org. All right, this is a May afternoon and... 2015, we're doing a special show at Jimmy's number 43 in the East Village. So, welcome to the show, guys. Um, I'll tell you what, Ellen, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about t- Tilted Shed Ciders. Well, Cheers. good morning. Welcome Thanks for having me. Yeah, breakfast yeah. the ladies of Jimmy. It's about 9, 9, 9.20 a.m. 6.20 my time, people. I have not adapted to this yet. Um, we're really happy to be here. Uh, my husband, Scott, is a cider maker, and I are visiting along with our son, and uh, we're just, we just came here to check out the cider scene. Um, I think what New York is doing is really exemplary. I think you've really uh, taken the lead in sort of defining what cider can be in America, and I think it's exciting. Now, don't tell my San Francisco people, my Northwest people that, um, but I've been really excited by, what, by what's been happening here, um, and I feel like these are my people, you know? So the ladies I'm with today are my people, and so I'm super happy to be here. Um, and real briefly about Tilted Shed, my husband and I started Tilted Shed in 2011 in Sonoma County. Um, it's just us. We're a total mom and pop, very much mom and pop operation, um, really small scale. We really focus on cider apples. We have our own cider orchard in Sebastopol. And really our, our goal is to elevate the apple to greatness. I know that may sound silly, but where we're from, the apple's just denigrated. It's destroyed, pulled out. Um, for vineyard and we're really into showing people how beautiful apples can be and what they can do um, once it's fermented and, and it's sublime and revelatory and all of that and so um, that's what we do and it's so you, you guys love. are in Sonoma County California yes. 
And right. was there a, a history of growing cider apples in that region? Not cider apples. So cider is not um, a part of our entrenched culture there. Uh, we do have an apple heritage, the Gravenstein, that you all mm -hmm. may have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, that's our heritage apple. Um, and it was planted in the 1800s as a commodity. So, and, and large swaths of it. So thousands of acres were planted to that, um, replacing hops uh, and prunes. So it's always been a commodification there. The orcharding there has been for commodification. Um, and during World War II, the Gravenstein supplied a lot of the um, apples for the soldiers. Um, they were canned, they were sauced, they were juiced. But it's always been for market and for commodification. Um, there have been other varieties, but again, just for market. But there's been no culture of, really, of cider. And so we don't have, you know, just... Um, cider apples by the wayside and you know colonial era things like that's not part of our our myth or like our mythology there it's not part of our landscape um and especially now so we're in the russian river valley and maybe you've heard of wine yes so maybe there's this little thing called pinot noir and chardonnay uh and that has replaced and supplanted whatever um you know uh, whatever role apples had in our in our economy and in our culture and in our agriculture, and that has dominated now. And so, even the apples that we have are constantly under threat. Um, and so, three thousand we had three thousand acres planted um, commercially of Gravenstein's and other market fruit. Um, let's see, back in like nineteen seventy, and now it's about five hundred. I was going to because Andy and I had the good fortune to be in California this winter, mm -hmm. and we met Ellen and Scott, and um, saw your house and your operation, and I, it was really striking um, the amount of vineyards and grapes that were going in. I, I guess it didn't, it wouldn't really hit home until I actually saw right. like how orchards were being ripped out to mm -hmm. be replaced with vineyards because. Um, basically, the amount you could get per tonnage Absolutely. is so much more. I mean, it's it's an economic reality, and I'm not here to uh, to 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 be critical so much of wine. There's great wine, great winemakers. We love it. It's it, it's part of our culture too. Um, but but we do want to champion biodiversity, and that and in all ways, right? Economically, agriculturally, um, culturally, and it it, it has been a real problem um, and the problem here is economic that you have a ton of Pinot Noir grapes from Russian River Valley that can go for 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 a ton mm -hmm. wow. mm -hmm. and $150 for apples. I mean, oh, where's yeah. the math? That's great. And as there's so much to talk about on the show, how, how did you get started? I mean, why did you guys make mm. cider in the first place? <laughs> uh, easy answer, hobby gone wild. Um, so, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually a writer and editor by profession, and so I've been in magazine and book editing and publishing for almost 20 years, and I'm old now. I feel <laughs> old. And my husband's a master printer of Intaglio Edition, so he's a fine artist. And that's our background, and um, you know, we thought we wanted to be writers, and I wanted to be a writer, and he wanted to be an artist, and we were living in New York, and you know, you have all those dreams, and... Um, for various reasons, that didn't work out. We became the technicians. So I'm the editor. He's the printmaker. Um, we help people 
actualize their vision. Um, and that's been great. Um, throughout that time though, we've moved around a lot because we've al always been trying to sort of connect agriculture and culture and not drop out of it to get back to the land, but to reconnect it and to make that bridge where agriculture is part of your life. Because look at our environmental degradation. Like look what we're doing all in the name of money, right? So that's just wrong. And so we've been trying to, you know, get into farming, get into canning, grow our own food. And part of that is growing your own drinks. So Scott, he's sort of a mad scientist with fermentation. And it's just like, if you can ferment it and then make booze out of it, he will do it. <laughs> so we have had so many different things going on um, in, our in our kitchen. And um, we were living in New Mexico briefly. So we one thing led to another. We ended up in the Santa Fe area, northern New Mexico. And we were doing market farming and freelancing. So we was freelance print making. I was freelance editing. We just had a baby. Um, we were doing a little farmer's market work. And we had an apple orchard. And Scott's like... We're going to make booze out of that. Let's do it. I'm like, yes, we are. So we got a barrel press. And, and we made our first batch of cider in 20, 2007. Um, just left it in our barn over the winter. And we never liked cider before. We thought it was just juice, like apple juice with vodka. It's like there's nothing going on. Mm -hmm. But this changed our mind. We thought that, huh, you know, it's, there's a little complexity to it. There's different flavors. Um, there's something to this. And then we read Ben Watson's book cider hard and sweet and that sort of changed our lives seriously so I always credit Ben with um, leading us to this place for better or for worse um, and then we just got deep in so we love to get deep in in our research and so we just became obsessed with it um, learned everything we could Scott went to cider school and then learned about cider Where, apples. Where's cider school? Well, that's the Cider Academy. So that's um, Peter Cornell. Mitchell's. He oh, went yeah. to Cornell. They Cornell, oh, they do it in Virginia, I think, sometimes. And, and then also Washington. Washington. Yeah, and so he went there, and he took, you know, the week-long course. Yeah. Um, and we just became absolutely obsessed to the point that Scott and I were like, we should open a cidery. We should plant a cider orchard. How do we do this? And um, meanwhile, I really miss being back in California. We're both from the Bay Area. Um, and I wanted my son to grow up there around family. And so we were looking to move back home. And then we knew that Sebastopol, so the Sonoma County, the Western Sonoma County area, was great. That's awesome. So we just learned about Ben Watson. He has a great book, Cider, Hard and Sweet. And we learned about cider school at Cornell. Two things I didn't know. <laughs> Let's fast forward. So we're drinking one of your ciders now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, that cider okay. and the story of this cider. All right. So what we have poured is our 2013 blend of Lost Orchard. Um, it is really small production. We only do about 100 and 150 gallons a year. And that's because they're cider apples. So the French and English bitter sharps and bittersweets and some of the American ones are really rare in Sonoma County. When we moved there in 2011 through a lot of sleuthing, Scott discovered two existing lost orchards and one in particular we found was a real gold mine these have been planted about 35 years ago by visionary couples who wanted to do what we're doing now make sort of old world style ciders in sonoma county and see what those apples can do wrong time for it it was the boom for the wine industry then um, they abandoned the orchards and they remained though for a couple of reasons they weren't plowed under um, and they make up a total of about a quarter acre so if you can understand having a quarter acre total of like Kingston back, 
Porter's Perfection, Nihu, Tremlet's Bitter, Roxbury Russet. Like, that's what we have. That's all we've that's got. Amazing. That's the that's cider amazing. fruit that's in California, exactly. pretty but much. It's amazing that you've and done that. And yeah. so what we do is we do a field blend of that. So Muscat de Bernay. So it's French, English, and um, Old American cider apples. You know, a lot of tannin or we're selected for cider only. Um, and year to year, it, it differs. So if you had the 2012... That one has a has a dark, a more autumn gold hue to it, um, a lot of more earthy flavors to it, more nuttiness. This one, even though it's basically from the same orchard, this is largely from the, the Lost Orchard, the real wild one, um, that it's lighter, it's a little more delicate, a little more floral. So I think for me, that's what's so exciting about cider is it shapeshifts over time and year to year it's different. And so it's it's never the same thing. And you know, we have, we have a lot happens. of ciders lined up for the show. And Kay, what, what, what's the flavor profile on this cider that we're tasting? Well, I think Ellen just nailed it. She said uh, floral. I get a lot of floral from this. Yeah. Mm. Dry. Um, definitely the presence of tannin, I think. You know, it's very well structured. Um, fruit, a little bit in the front, but I wouldn't say, like, you could pass this as a, as a like a almost a grape wine in certain circles. Like if you didn't tell somebody, I mean, I can I can taste the apple. I can taste the apple, but it's really sort of light on the fruit. It's definitely up. And you guys are distributed in New York. We are, yeah, um, through T. Edward, and um, we have just a small distribution out here because we're so small scale. We can't do too much, but. We, we were really excited by the opportunity to come out here, yeah. So, so why, since you're so small and you're based in California, why do you sell in New York City? Because uh, you guys are awesome. <laughs> uh, you. No, you are. I mean, so Scott and I used to live in New York, and so our hearts are still here. Um, and because it's an incredible cider area, and if I could be even remotely close to the same menu as Andy and Polly cider or something like that, like that's a kinship. And so I, I'm kind of excited to do that. Um, and also I do want to show people that Sonoma County is amazing for cider. I want people to know, to love and value our apples. I mean, I, I feel like we're sort of on a mission here. Uh, I'm on a crusade. I'm an evangelist that not only do I want people to revere and love cider but i want them to love these apples and so the only way you can save things is if you value them and i want people to really value what our county can do wow you're like a cider evangelist (laughs) 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 and then paulie so you know we've we've had a couple of years now i've been lucky to get some of the aramber ciders same thing you guys are real small production yeah tell us a little about what what you have in common with with tilt shed well, actually, Andy and I have a lot in common with Tilted Shed, um, and uh, we're both, um, well, first off, we're both a husband and wife team. Um, my husband, Andy's the cider maker, as is Scott. Um, I would say we're, we're also both really small. Um, we it's, it's actually amazing, the similarities, because we, st- I would say our first batch of cider was also like around 2007. Uh, but we got our license in, at the end of 2011. So, um, you know, same kind of like time period. Um, in addition to the fact that um, similar backgrounds, I would say, because um, Andy and I both have a background in art. Um, and I would say Andy's background in art is maybe more traditional, uh, going along with Scott's mm-hmm. um, uh, background in printmaking and, and, and being a master printmaker. And I was thinking... Um, because Gay had asked about the whole art thing, and I don't mean to jump the gun, but I was just thinking about that. Um, uh, 
because my art is much more like uh, free form, whereas Andy's much more, you know, traditional, craft oriented, and I think that does relate to the cider. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it is amazing actually how many much similarity we have. Right. And that's what we felt when we met them, that these were our people, we're hanging out with them. We met you for like five minutes, and I felt like we knew each other forever. And that's true. It felt like that. And, and because it is, because cider is our creative outlet. It is an endeavor that requires a lot of creative skill and thought and, um, and to expression. I think that's there's what it is. There's incredible similarities between art and cider making, I think, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. every choice, there's thousands of choices to be made and every choice is going to affect the next choice and the final outcome and it's incredibly creative but also very scientific so there's a lot of of artistry and whether no matter what your style is if you're that tight technical artist or you're a more free form no matter what it is you're going to see that in the cider yeah you're going to see the cider yeah and And i think it's just yes the whole craft that brings like the drink back to like this is a craft beverage. Um, this isn't a mass-produced product. It's mm-hmm. a, um, so it's it's handmade, and like you're right, those decisions that you make, and there's many decisions to make, and how they affect uh, the next um, mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. But I was also just going to say, um, yeah, that just I think the art really ends it lends an interesting aspect to the cider making. Absolutely, I can taste it in the glass. You know, hey, well, this is a great show. We're at Jimmy's number forty-three. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. In 1996, Elknife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special mm. breakfast cider show with Gay and Kay from the United States of Cider and Ellen from Tilted Shed and Polly from Ehrenberg. We're talking cider, art, culture, and all this cool stuff. So, uh, Kay, you just popped a, a second cider. Which one's this? Well, this is another uh, Lost Orchard from Tilted Shed, but Ellen's going to tell us how this one is different from the first bottle that we opened. Right, so this is also from the 2013 Harvest, but what we did is we held back 50 gallons and we're trying to put Lost Orchard on a two-year aging cycle and bottle condition it. So what you had previously um, was released a year after pressing, and uh, we force carbonated it very lightly, just for a little touch. This one, uh, it was you know, re-fermented in bottle for the carbonation, um, and it's been in bottle now for two years. So, or it's been two years since pressing. So. Um, 
We don't know how well our ciders age yet. We've only been doing this since 2011 commercially, but I think it has a lot of legs, and I think two years is going to be a good year on this particular cider. Um, and the, the bottle conditioning adds a new layer of, for me, complexity to it, um, a real softness to it, um, and so we're really excited. And I'm, I'm interested to hear what these ladies think because I don't think they've had it yet, <laughs> and because yeah. it hasn't been released yet. Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of more like dried floral notes out of this one. A little bit of grassiness. I think you're right. It is a little more complex, and you can I mean, look. You can see the legs. How often do you do that with cider? I know people do it with wine a lot, uh -huh. but how often do you do it with cider where you tilt your glass to the side and you look and see the legs coming down? Yeah. And this one's got it, you know, undoubtedly. This is a fun breakfast. <laughs> yeah, right. Especially if you haven't eaten, like me. Things are getting crazy. So this yeah, is from the right. same year as the one that we just drank. Correct. Right. Okay, yeah, so it's amazing how just that small difference of bottle fermentation. Mm -hmm. It really you know, changes, it changes the, it. the yeah. experience of the tannins. It kind of opens them up and spreads them out. And right. Really and, nice. And we'd love to, we're going to be doing more of that. Um, as Polly can attest to, when it's really just Scott, I mean, Scott... Hand bottles every single thing. I mean, he does it all. Um, bottles it all, labels, caps it. You know, he's done all that work that it's really hard to do the extra steps right. with the bottle conditioning um, and the trial and error that goes into it. But we love it, and so we're going to be doing more of that. Yeah. But I also think just doing it in small batches. I mean, it is a, even in small batches, it is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alan and Polly, what, what's the difference? I mean, you guys are so small, small scale, and now we have a lot of home cider makers. You know, what's the difference between what you would make as a home cider maker and what you guys are making commercially? Um, you mean in terms of volume? Not so, in terms oh, of volume, but in terms of processes. Um, that's a good question. I I would say the only difference for us really is the volume. I mean, we're we're oh, doing right, things volume. we're doing yes. things the way. And we have better equipment than when we did at first. I'm not using a barrel press and putting it in a manual hopper. You know, I've got a OSCO grinder and a hydraulic rocket rack and cloth press. But everything is the same, you know. And, and in fact, even now, we give it more time. Do you know what I mean? When you're, at home, when you're doing it at home, you're just like, all right, I want to taste this in three weeks or in three months. And we're like, we'll, we'll sample it. But we're not, that one's not going out the door for a year. That one's not going out the door for two years. Like, I think at this level, we want it to be everything that goes out that door that has tilted shed on that name. We, we feel it has to be the best it can possibly be. And when we were just doing it at home in our barn, it's just like, yeah, that, that'll be fine. Good you know? <laughs> Good enough. I drink that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, that, it doesn't have to be so perfect when it goes out the door. Maybe when you're just when you're a home cider maker, you might experiment more, um, a little bit more, because you could make something like in one carboy. Mm. Whereas if you're doing it to sell, then you wouldn't sell. That would be too small. Although we, that you do really small bottlings, and oh, we've done like our our January barbecue smoked cider oh. that we did in 2011. We made, I think, 30 gallons of it. It was a, just an it was just an experiment. Uh, did you, did okay. you smoke the apples? We smoked apples, uh, some, um, like just in our home smoker, and then put that in base juice during the fermentation. So it's like an infusion. 
kind of the smoked apples. And that we didn't, like, we were just doing that for fun. We had some juice. We're like, let's try this. Scott thought it would be a great idea, and it worked out really well. And so we did, you know, 18 cases that year. (laughs) And we're like, well, that worked out. So we do a fair amount, actually, of experimentation, whether or not it ever goes beyond, like, the breakfast table here with you. I don't know, but we still do it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you always do, but I just thinking like like going out the door. Um, mm-hmm. But again, maybe the only difference really is just volume and slightly better equipment. Yeah. <laughs> but last year, you and Andy came for we did a, a cider wick. It was like a little weekend in June, right. and you guys did a, a home cider making workshop. And I know that you're going to be back at Jimmy's number forty three, June twenty seventh. Right. Tell us how that works, because you guys are kind of unique in, in the Northeast in your approach to cider making. Well, that, um, the whole home cider maker was really inspired by an event, that similar event that happens at Cider Days, which is um, a cider sharing, making, growing session in Massachusetts um, that happens once a year, the first weekend in November. And um, Andy and I always joke that everything we ever learned about cider, we learned at Cider Days. Um, and the ho- bring your own, the home Brewers um, is has always been really informative, and for that very reason, there's so much experimentation. And there's could be horrible ciders, uh, you know, crazy things that people put in the cider, um, like Coca-Cola to um, to uh, you know, or, or um, to you know, really interesting things. And that's actually where we make a ginger cider, and that's where um, someone brought in cider that they fermented with ginger. And we're like, oh well, so. It, it, being able to share, which mm-hmm. we think is so important, like just meeting here or meeting um, Alan and Scott from Tilted Chat or talking about cider is a really important part of cider culture and to us. And is, is there a growing home cider making movement in New York? Um, I mean, how many people will come yes. to the home cider making workshop? Um, I think there's 10 people. Is there 50 um, people? Oh, the one um, in Cider Days. In Cider Days, yeah. it's maybe like 60, 70 people, I'd say. And come people to, are coming from all over. The people the, come from all over. The New England, the East Coast. Yes. We've yeah. went to Cider Days twice. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that's yeah. where we first met you guys. That's but, right. Yeah. yeah. So, I think there is a um, growing home movement. I was actually, I was in a bookstore recently, and there was a book on making home brews and it ranged from cider to you know anything you could ferment at home so I think just with the whole local thing and people being there's more, more interest in, yeah. in learning about the process I yeah. think yes, you, want, you want to taste what do you want to taste next case it's an interesting process that you're going through you're, you're kind of selecting the order of our ciders yeah well I wanted to do those two back to back because I wanted to you know some you can taste the difference and it goes into the conversation of you know the make and the choices and what you do letting this one go a little longer, you know, how it affects. And it's, it's the best way to find out is to taste them. And when you taste them back-to-back, I think that's where you learn the most. So, uh, yeah, I think the tasting order is pretty important. So what's next? Uh, what are we going to so taste next? I think next, I mean, in this, sorry, and this is just because uh, I really want to taste it. It's the Inclinado, which is a new product from Tilted Shed, which is another one I haven't had yet. It's their Spanish style. All right, let's let's taste that. So talking about you know California versus New York, we know in New York there's water, and, you know, <laughs> but in California, so there's all this talk about drought. Oh my goodness, it's not just talk; it's horrible. So um, I'm a native Californian. I've been through droughts throughout my life, and 
This one sort of takes the cake, people. It's really bad. And I know when you're out here on the East Coast and you're bulldozing snow into the Atlantic Ocean because you have no more room for it, you don't understand. But uh, climate change is happening, people, and we better get on this. Um, It's brutal out there. And 75% of some of our commercial food crops come from California. And you're not going to be having those soon or not at an affordable price at some point. So if you value food and you want to have it year-round as much as you want to be local, you know, you do have to be concerned with what's happening in California. That said, um, where we're at, all of our apples um, that we get, so we're getting our apples largely from all organic um, orchards uh, in the area that have been planted, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Um, or sometimes 30, but they were always set up for dry farming. Dry farming means they need no supplemental irrigation during the dry season. The dry season for us typically goes from about April to October. Now all bets are off. Who knows? But it's dry. And so we don't irrigate those. And those um, and even our young cider orchard, we have minimally irrigated on drip irrigation very infrequent waterings to really take those roots down to the soil where they can tap into the water table. So what you're having, uh, even though climate change and the drought and all this stuff is horrible, it's actually, we think, resulting in some pretty incredible ciders because of the apples. And so what's happening is just as with um, wine that they like, some of the winemakers like really low yield stressed vines because they concentrate the phenolics, they concentrate the tannins and the flavors and really develop those sugars. Same thing's going on with the apples. And so we're finding that our apples are reaching really high bricks. So sugar levels of up to 20 degrees, which is kind of nuts, I think, because I don't know what you guys are getting out here, but I'm pretty sure it's not 20. Um, And that's with like Roxbury Russet and Kingston Black. But then the, the sugars are already concentrated, so we don't need to tump them. We don't need to sweat them or anything like that. And the phenolics and the tannins seem to be pretty pronounced and pretty rowdy. So I'm really interested to see how this drought affects the quality. And it, even though it's horrible, it, it may be resulting in some of the best harvest we can have. Who knows? We'll see. Well, I have to say, I think it's interesting you use the word rowdy because the, we've known about your ciders for a while, but the first time we tasted them, there was something so different from the East Coast ciders. There was kind of a rowdy, rambunctious yeah. activity to them that seemed really Western. So, uh, Yes. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! You said hobby gone wild, grow your own drinks, dry farming, rowdy, you know. <laughs> and cider school, I mean, that's pretty rowdy. <laughs> Wow. So, Paul, for you guys, so, you know, you're up in uh, Sullivan County, and uh, yeah. what what started what you guys making cider? Because I never really interviewed you, you or Andy before. Um, so, in some ways, it's kind of a similar thing. Andy and I moved to Sullivan County. Um, we bought an old homestead farm, and uh, we started to plant an orchard because Andy's always been really into apple trees, and, um, and the property we bought had some old apple trees on it, and... Uh, in 2007 it was a bumper crop of um, apples on those old trees and we collected them all and brought, brought them to a local um, orchard or cider mill and they pressed them for us and we came back with 40 gallons of juice and we're like we have to ferment this because we can't just drink all this juice <laughs> um, and then we started well, well we can make all our own alcohol you know <laughs> um, and so we started experimenting with making hard cider um, 
and then we just started really getting into it. Um, I think at, at that point, I don't know if either of us had ever had hard cider before, or if we had, we'd written it off as some right. horrible drink. Um, so we started to really get into. We started to explore other hard ciders, um, you know, particularly like West County, Farnham Hill, and we started to get obsessed. <laughs> um, and started to try and learn as much as we could. We went to Cider Days a lot. We read Ben Watson's book. Um, there's another book by Annie Prue and Nicholas mm -hmm. Liu um, about cider making. And um, we became obsessed with the whole culture of cider. And, and at a certain point, we were like, we, well, maybe we can make this and sell it. You know, at first it was from we can drink this, we can make our own alcohol to maybe we can make What you do is it. unique. I mean, do you own cider orchards or are you going out into, into the woods? So both. We have um, about five acres of planted trees, um, but those trees um, have just started fruiting. Um, so um, we um, go, we have old trees, and then we started to forage for apples. And, and part of this is when we started to plant apple trees, we went to the local Cornell Cooperative Extension. They're like, oh, you can't grow apples in this county. It's too rocky. It's too acidic. And then we were driving around, and like, there's tons of apple trees, you know, just abandoned by the side of the road. Um, and as we started to read, as, as well as make the cider, we realized that this is what people traditionally made their cider from, was um, trees that were grown from seed, that were pippins, um, some grafted varieties, but all these trees that were growing in the wild that had been left and abandoned uh, produced a better cider. And it's interesting, the whole idea of the drought, um, about kind of starving the apple and concentrating the sugars and the flavors, I think a little similar, f especially for our county, which it is very rocky. There's not a lot of like deep soil. Um, the, the soil is very acidic. Uh, the apple trees really have to struggle. And in the trees we've planted, um, it's kind of the same thing. We, we, Andy talks about not coddling the trees. They have to, you know, they have to survive, and that's going to translate into the flavors and the sugars mm -hmm. and the acids that you're going to get in that apple. When you have a little seedling nursery going, correct, that you're actually taking the pomace and letting some of that sprout and then yeah, so turn into baby trees that then you nurture and see if they turn into... A fruit that you're going to be happy with? Yeah. So basically, um, uh, oh yeah, when we, after pressing, you have all the seeds and the skins, and that's thrown kind of into a compost pile. And so in the spring, like lots of little apple um, seedlings start to sprout, so we'll collect those and kind of n we will nurture those to see if they could survive. Um, and actually, we just, um, last fall, we cleared another four acres and just planted a seedling orchard. That's awesome. Um, but you don't know what fruit <laughs> so we don't know. Yeah, so we don't know it's what fruit. Um, each but their own. Each, right, yes. Each will be their own. That's such a fascinating experiment, like to do a whole orchard of seedlings, because they're all going to be different. They're all. To see, or see how different they actually are going to be. Mm -hmm. You're a pomological research station, too. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's how, that's I how I regard like us. guys are doing like, is yes. very right. much like what yes. they were doing in the 18th century. <laughs> they were planting things yeah. and seeing what thrived in the certain regions and then bringing up the ones mm -hmm. that they were happy with and mm -hmm. experimenting and testing. And mm -hmm. you guys with your small plots of land are doing that. Pomological again. research station. Yeah. Yeah. Write that yeah. one yeah. down, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm still going. Yeah. Yeah. The words are my thing. Yeah, yes, that's what yeah. I do. I, right. I well, talk a lot. Yeah. And I, you guys, you guys are definitely talking a lot. So hey, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions. <laughs> <laughs> 